That's okay. We'll figure it out. It'll go right there. I just want to start off, well, first off, I'm Lindsay Sitzma. Nice to meet anyone who I haven't met before. Oh, thank you. Applause. That's beautiful. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, no, I just want to start off by saying a huge thank you to my Courtright family over these last few weeks with Justin's surgery and recovery. We got notes and we got cards and we had people tell us they were praying for us. Um, we had people bring us meals and it was just such a blessing. It was such an amazing support. I just want to say thank you to all of you and I am very happy that I can serve our church family in this small way this morning. And I want to start off this morning by asking you a question. I'm going to put this question on the side screens. And it's, do you approach Jesus like he is a politician or like he is a mountain guide? And you might look and hear that question and you might think me very confused. And you might immediately say, neither. I don't look at Jesus as either, either of those things. But I want this question to stay in our brains this morning as we approach the text that we're going to look at. Is Jesus our politician or is he our mountain guide? And if you have your Bibles with you, we are going to be in Matthew 19 this morning. So if you want to get ready, you can turn there now. And this passage that we're going to be looking at, it, it appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it appears pretty similarly in terms of, of wording and where it happens in the narrative. But I chose the text from Matthew specifically because I think when we understand a bit more about the gospel of Matthew... If we look at his purpose and, dare I say, agenda for writing his euangelion, his proclamation of good news, his gospel, we understand this text in a new and different way. And I think it adds a really beautiful dimension to where we're going to go this morning. So the gospel of Matthew is believed to have been written by Matthew. <laughs> Matthew the disciple who was a tax collector. And Matthew would have been an outsider. He would have been a pariah within his Jewish community, his synagogue, maybe even his family. He sold out to the Romans by becoming a tax collector. So his Jewish brethren would not have had kind thoughts towards this man. But Jesus calls Matthew while he's in the middle of doing his job. And Matthew writes in his own gospel that he gets up immediately, leaves everything behind, and follows after Jesus. So Matthew's proclamation of good news is written by a man who was once a Jewish outsider. And the book of Matthew is written to a group of Jews. It is very possible it's Jews who were kind of reeling from the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. We're not quite sure. But we do know that his audience is Jewish. So these are a group of people who know the scriptures. They know the law. They know the prophets. And to them, Matthew, announce, Matthew announces that there is a new king. And there is a new kingdom through Jesus. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Hebrew scriptures, but Jesus is fulfilling them in a way that people are not expecting. Jesus is doing a new thing. He's offering a new divine teaching, and he's establishing a new covenant. And one of Matthew's main points, his main arguments to this Jewish audience is that how they have practiced their faith within their community has pushed people to the margins. It has created outsiders. It has become too inward focused. It has become too insular. And Matthew is critiquing this in some way, but he's also offering a warning and he's trying to 
edify his readers. He is arguing that Jesus' new kingdom is available to whoever wants to be part of what God is doing. And Matthew's gospel is very confrontational at points. And if you, you know, I recommend trying to read it in one sitting. But as you move through the pages and the chapters, it is chock full of stories and encounters with people who would not have traditionally been insiders within the Jewish community. In fact, they are outsiders. And yet they find belonging in King Jesus and what he is doing. And these are the people that Jesus is calling to him. Single pregnant women, a Roman centurion, those deemed unclean, the demon-possessed, a tax collector, a prostitute, women, the poor, the homeless, the dispossessed, children. These are the people that Jesus is calling to him to build God's kingdom. So Jesus is walking into places and spaces that are filled with people who believe themselves to be righteous, people who know the law, they know the scriptures, and they believe themselves to be living it out and are devoted to the obedience of it. But in doing so, they have lost the purpose of the law and they have begun excluding people. And Matthew is arguing that this is not the obedience that God is looking for. Their vision of the kingdom is too narrow. All these people that have it figured out, Matthew is saying, yeah, you're missing out. You haven't figured it out at all. In fact, Jesus is doing something different. God's kingdom is not for those who put stock in their own righteousness. It's for outsiders. And this is very personal for Matthew because he's saying, I was an outsider and Jesus called me. And Jesus, if you read through Matthew, he lifts up outsiders as examples of faith and humility that are honoring God. So that is where our starting place is this morning. That's the context we're stepping into. So we are reading from Matthew 19, starting at verse 16. Then a man came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and also love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all of these. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and then you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals... It is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this passage is famously called The Rich Young Man. That might be the title that you see in your Bible when you're reading it. But this unnamed man is largely identified by his status. He's wealthy. 
He's likely relatively young. There's some contextual clues that kind of lead scholars to believe that. And because of his wealth, it is likely that he has some type of authority or position of leadership. The other gospels actually call him a ruler. So we believe that he might be a leader of some kind. And he's Jewish. And there can be a very cynical interpretation to this story, where this this man who is wealthy and who has authority, he comes in haughty arrogance to Jesus and is really just looking for Jesus to tell him that you are an excellent human being. But I want us to give this young man the benefit of the doubt here this morning. Let's assume that this is a good man who is trying his hardest to keep the law. It was a common Jewish belief at this time that you could keep the law that the law demanded action and intention. If you had these things, you are keeping the law. And there were mechanisms built into the law for where people fell short. And Matthew's Jewish audience would have believed in the importance of keeping the law as part of right living or having a right standing before God. And yet this man comes earnestly seeking something. Notice him calling Jesus teacher or rabbi. He respects the knowledge and authority of Jesus, and he assumes that Jesus has an answer to the question that he is asking. He wants Jesus to tell him how he can inherit eternal life. And Jesus first points him to the law, something this Jewish man would understand. And again, for the Jews, this is a right way of living, a good way of living. And I don't think Jesus points to the law because Jesus is saying that if you keep the law, you get eternal life. I, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I mean, if you look at the very first verses of this passage, the man asks, what good thing can I do? And Jesus immediately says, no, there's only one who is good. So he's already pivoting away from things that we can do. But Jesus, I think, think is using the law as a frame of reference that this man would understand. Jesus is grounding this man in the familiar so that they have a starting place for this conversation that is about to take place, for the truth that Jesus is going to reveal in just a few sentences. And this man, when Jesus says, oh, you have to keep the commandments, the man says, well, yes, I do this. And he says, I keep the commandments that you've listed, and we're going to park on this a little bit later, but notice the commandments that Jesus did not say in the list. But for the the commands that Jesus listed, this man says, yes, I do these things. And maybe he did. We don't know. Jesus doesn't give us any indication that he doesn't believe this man. But if we think of this in light of Matthew's gospel agenda, this man has performed that which he should have done, and he is the quintessential insider. And yet he still asks, what do I lack? And I can't help but think that even with all his wealth and all his worldly success, this man feels some type of lack in his life. Or maybe he fears there is a lack in his life. But he has some type of awareness that something is missing. And Jesus answers him, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. And then what happens? It says that this man goes away grieved because of his great wealth or his many possessions, depending on your translation. He couldn't do it. He asked Jesus a question, and I believe he was sincere and honest in asking this question, and yet the answer was too much for him. It's clearly not what he expected, or he wouldn't have been so disappointed by the answer. 
And this passage often gets used to preach about money, that we shouldn't love money or we shouldn't make an idol out of money, or about grace and how you can't perform your way into eternal life. Both are very good interpretations of this text and are true statements, but I want us to look at this story from a little bit of a different angle. Because why does this man come to Jesus asking what he can do to get eternal life, especially when he already believes that he's kept the law? You know, this man is clearly materially blessed. This is a time when if a Jew had a lot of material blessings, that was seen as a reward from God for righteous living. So he has all of the answers we think he should have. So why does he ask this question of Jesus? And why is he so surprised and grieved by the answer Jesus gives? To dig a little deeper, I am going to be borrowing an analogy from a pastor named Tim Mackey. So I am, I am borrowing, borrowing content from someone else. And I want you to picture an election, a local, provincial, federal, U.S. Maybe not U.S., it's a little scary for a Sunday morning. <laughs> but in an election, there are candidates, and they present to their constituents a vision for what they think their constituents' lives can look like. And there are speeches and there's rallies and there's debates, but the goal is for the candidate to show their vision of what it means to do the will of the people. This is meant to be a civil servant position. And as voters, the goal is to find the candidate who presents the best vision that aligns with how you think your life should go. And people generally vote for someone, you know, who aligns with their values or, or shows them the vision of the life that they want. We want politicians to aspirationally paint us a picture of the benefits that they will get, give to us if they lead. We want them to help us get the life that we want. We vote for a person who thinks that they make ours or our community's lives better or easier or more certain. And maybe you already see where I'm going with this. Because I think this young man approaches Jesus like Jesus is a politician. Yes, I understand they didn't have democracy at that time, but I think the analogy still works. He approaches Jesus like he is a worldly leader, trying to convince people to follow after him because of the benefits it will bring to them. And I think this is a trap that all of us can fall into. I, will, I would say that at some point, you and I, I will speak for myself and say definitely I, I have viewed Jesus as a politician. We invite Jesus into our lives and we want him to deal with our problems, to answer our prayers, to give us comfort, to give us certainty. We ask him for things that will make our lives easier or more secure. We wanna know that we're in, that we have figured it out or that we are on the path to figuring it out. And you know you're viewing Jesus as a politician because the minute he is not delivering on your vision of the good life, when something in your life falls apart or your prayers don't get answered in a way that you would like them to, or when Jesus, like to this young man, says, I want you to sell your possessions and give them all to the poor, and whatever Jesus is doing, that answer is not acceptable to us. It is fine to be disappointed when things go wrong in our life, but if we get jaded disillusioned, bitter, massively angry at God. We are looking at Jesus like he's a politician. We won't use that language, but in our heads, it's like, but I voted for you, Jesus. I gave you my time and my resources, and oh my gosh, I gave you my money. And I expected you, Jesus, to deliver on my vision of the good life. I wanted you to lead me into the vision of the good life. 
and I would argue that that is what the rich young man in this story does. He comes to Jesus, and there is a tension inside of him between his own believed right living and this feeling of lack in his life, and he wants Jesus to give him the answers to give him a vision of how he will inherit eternal life, where there is something good that he can do. And his request is incredibly self-focused when you really look at it. And he has a very specific end destination in mind that we must believe that is going to give him some type of comfort. And Jesus does not answer this man the way that he hopes. And we don't really know what he necessarily hoped for, but we know that Jesus did not deliver because he walks away grieved. And he had the chance to follow after Jesus. And as far as we know, he doesn't take it. He just leaves. This is a man of status and comfort. I imagine his life had relative ease. He was probably used to being the first and the best in many ways and having more. And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, and the idea of perfect here is complete or without lack. It is the reverse. He says, what am I lacking? And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be without lack, this is what you need to do. You need to stop being so worried about your own comfort. You need to get uncomfortable. You need to sell all of your possessions, which is a sign of your, or what you believe is a sign of your earthly blessing. And I want you to give all of your money to the poor, which is a group of outsiders. And notice the order here. When you do that, then come follow after me. And again, I don't think Jesus is saying that you could just perform this action and that is going to get you into, into eternal life. Jesus is trying to reveal something in this man's heart. He's holding up a mirror to it. I think that this man wanted a very academic answer. He wanted a, a hypothetical situation, a detached thing that he could do. And what happens is that he encounters Jesus in a very real and a very personal way. Jesus doesn't, doesn't let the question remain hypothetical. He doesn't let it remain academic. He cuts right into the heart of what this man struggles with. And I hope you're beginning to see why I think this story is so rich in Matthew's gospel, because this man, this, this insider, he thinks this conversation is going to go one way, and then Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God following after me, it is different than you think it is, and I think it's going to demand more of you than you are willing to give. When we come to Jesus and ask him how we should live, how we should follow after him, do we want him to paint us a vision of the good life? Do we want him to give us certainty and comfort? Do we want it to be academic, surface level, a list of things that we can do, or do we want Jesus to really know us and for us to know him and his ways and what his kingdom looks like. A favorite fictional book of mine is one called The Nightingale. It's a piece of historical fiction, and it looks at the French resistance in World War II. And in it, the main, or one of the main characters, is trying to cross the border between Nazi-occupied France and Switzerland, which is neutral at the time. They are running for their life. They are being hunted by the Nazis. And the only way to get into Switzerland is to go across a mountain path. The, the border between France and Switzerland that was not occupied was mountainous. And it is a dangerous and treacherous path, and it is guaranteed to be difficult, but the resistant network has 
skilled mountain guides that can help lead people across into freedom. And these mountain guides are the only ones who really know these trails. They know them well. And when they say walk, you walk. And when they say run, you run. And when they say sleep, you sleep. And when they say you have to drop everything that you are carrying so that we can get a move on, you have to drop everything that you're carrying or else you will not survive this mountain trek. Because the mountain guide knows the way to freedom and life. And it's a beautiful picture of submission and trust and dependence. And if we approach Jesus like he is a politician, we are going to be disappointed because it means that we are coming to Jesus with closed fists, trying to hold on to the vision of the good life that we want for ourselves, or even worse, we're trying to convince Jesus of the vision that he's supposed to sell to us. And it's not going to work, because Jesus is much more like a mountain guide. He wants to lead us to freedom and life, and he knows the way. He is the way. But it requires us to be willing to open our fists, to be willing to drop everything that we need to drop in order to follow after where he leads. Jesus knows what this man wants. He realizes what this man is coming to and asking for. This man is saying, show me a vision of the good life. Jesus, show me how your teaching is going to give me the destination that I want on my terms. And Jesus looks at him. And in the Gospel of Mark, it's beautiful. It says that Jesus loved him. This man of wealth and status who is the quintessential insider within the Jewish community, Jesus sees his heart. He sees his clenched fists, everything he is not willing to drop. Look at the list of commandments that Jesus first gives to this man that he says he keeps. What is noticeably missing? Because it's everything from commandment one to four, where we don't have any gods before God, where we do not make idols, and where we do not take the Lord's name in vain. And when we talk about taking the Lord's name in vain, it's about when we do not claim God as our ruler, and we just don't live it out. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. When you claim God, but you do not live out your life as an image bearer, or you use God's name to do your own purposes and not his. Those are noticeably missing commandments, and don't they get to the heart of the issue here? Jesus is trying to rescue this man from himself, Jesus has his long-term well-being in mind rather than his short-term comfort, but this man can't see it because Jesus is like a mountain guide. Jesus is asking us to be willing, well, asking him and us to be willing to drop everything to go where he will lead us. We have to be willing to let it all go, to follow after him, and he will show us the way to life. Do you approach Jesus like he is a politician, or is Jesus your mountain guide. After the man leaves, Jesus shares that it is difficult for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. And apparently everyone who is around Jesus is astounded by this statement. And remember, we're dealing with a time where wealth was often seen as a sign of blessing from God, that you were somehow uh, very moral or very righteous. And we absolutely still have vestiges of that in our culture today. And Jesus is warning and admonitions, they question that. And it challenges what the disciples in the crowds thought was upright. 
And yes, this particular story is about money. That is the idol that this young man holds in his heart. That's the attachment that he has. And we should absolutely take this passage very seriously as a story about how we need to reflect on how we view money. But this story is bigger than that. It's a, it's a very specific way to look at the human condition as a whole because we can become way too attached to things and we'll cling to things for security or status or comfort. Yes, money, it's a very tangible example of that, but there are others. Our families, our jobs, our beliefs, our behaviors, our patterns, our theology. It's anything that we cling to for control and certainty apart from what God has asked to be at the center of our life. In God's kingdom, Jesus is not a politician who is trying to sell you on the good life. He's a mountain guide that knows the weight of life and he wants to lead you to come and follow after him. Remember when the guy asked, Jesus, what good deed can I do? Jesus says, there are no good deeds you can do. There is only one who is good. A lot of you know that I work for Mission Aviation Fellowship, and if you don't, I work for Mission Aviation Fellowship, or MAF. And if you've been following uh, any aviation news or, or things in, in the Christian sphere, you will know that one of our U.S.-based pilots is currently in prison in Mozambique. He's been wrongfully imprisoned for three months. Uh, there have been no formal charges laid against him. He doesn't really know why he's in prison. He's in a maximum security prison in Mozambique. And this week, he was just denied bail, and no reason was given. And Ryan, his name is Ryan, his name is Ryan Kaur, he writes letters from prison and messages home to his family and, and to the organization as a whole. And, and we publish some of them, and we don't publish others. And I get the privilege of reading Ryan's letters from prison, and I mean privilege literally, and I'm going to work really hard not to cry when I talk about this, because Ryan's letters are so beautiful. And they are the perfect vision of what it means to just be open-fisted. Ryan writes of the incredible peace that Christ has given him. Ryan writes about the amazing opportunity he's had to read his Bible and to share the message of Christ with those he's in prison with. He asks for more Bibles so that he can give them out so that this can all be for God's glory. And this is a guy, I, I don't know much about Mozambican prisons, but I can't imagine they're, you know, top-notch. And he's here, and he's here for no reason. And yet he writes these beautiful letters about following after God and how grateful he is that he has Jesus and the immense privilege it is to share of Jesus as he is sitting in prison. And it, like I said, it's the most beautiful image of being open-fisted, and it has been challenging me just daily in my work. Because this story of the rich young ruler, there's two parts of it. Yes, there's how we approach Jesus, but there's also how we choose to respond to Jesus when things don't, when, it, when it's not what we expect. So yeah, there's how do we approach, but how do we respond when we're given that opportunity, when Jesus shares what he, how he, or how he wants us to follow after him? And I don't know about you, but one of the reasons that I resist the cynical interpretation that I shared about early is because I see so much of myself in this young man. We want to belong to the kingdom of God. We love Jesus' teachings about freedom and love and the grace that he promises, but so often I think we want to follow after him on our own terms. 
And I think the Western evangelical church as a whole really needs to consider this more often and be willing to look inwardly where we have fallen prey to this thinking. I don't mean that as a judgment. I don't mean that to be harsh. And I don't mean that as a systemic indictment against the church. But I do think that for me, growing up in, in the Western church, and, and maybe for you as well, it is way too easily, way too easy to be confident in our own wisdom and to be comfortable in our own comfort and to say that, yes, I am detached from these idols in my life, but we're really not. It's just lip service. We're too quick to say there is this only right way and we know this right way and we are way too quick to ignore the danger of becoming overconfident. And when we do that, we put ourselves in a position where we might be making Jesus our politician. And if we are doing that, we are going to miss some of the incredible work he wants to do through and in us. The disciples in their awe and in their surprise and in their wonder of this exchange, they ask a very pointed question, who can be saved. They are so confused by this exchange. Remember, they're thinking, oh my goodness, this man, like, if, he's, if he doesn't have it, then who has it? If he is not going to inherit the kingdom of life, who is going to do that? And I think they're, they're also still reeling from just this topsy-turvy kingdom where Jesus is asking you to give your all, and that's really hard. And I think they're asking, who can be saved? And Jesus answers, it's not possible for you. There is no good deed. There is only a good God. It is not possible by your own efforts to do these things. It is not possible to save yourselves. But with Jesus, with God, all things are possible. Church, Jesus wants to lead us into life. He will show us the way to freedom and salvation. He is the mountain guide. He knows the way. He is the way, and he will stick with us. He offers us that promise and that comfort, but are we willing to have open hands? Are we willing to just let go of our vision of the good life and just watch what Jesus does? Because with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just, we come before you and we come, we come with open hands or we come with hands that want to be open before you, God. We come with hands that say, God, whatever I am carrying, whatever idol I am bringing in my heart, remove it. Let me know it. Let me pierce through me. Let me have a real and personal encounter just like this young man in our story did. God, let me see what you are calling me to let go of, God. And would you give us the strength to take that first step to letting it go? God, when we say, when we come to you and say, Lord, be the leader of my life, may we truly mean it. When we say we will follow you wherever you go, God, would you give us a pathway to do that, a clear one so that we can know? God, forgive us for all of the times where we have struggled with this. We thank you that you are a gracious God who meets us in our brokenness as we struggle with this and offers mercy and forgiveness. We thank you for that. God, we ask with expectation, we pray with expectation that we will see you do the impossible in ourselves, 
in our communities, in our workplaces, in our families. God, may we see you do the impossible. May we follow after you and watch you work, watch you do what you do, building this kingdom with those who want to be a part of your work, God. Give us the strength. Give us a way to do this. Show us the way to do this, God. May we just desire so keenly in our hearts to follow after you. Jesus, thank you for leading us to life, to freedom, to salvation. Thank you for being our mountain God, mountain guide. Thank you for guiding us. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.